0: Welcome back, folks, for a special episode of Alpha Control, a Lost in Space podcast. Today, I'm flying the Jupiter 2 solo without my trusty co-host, Kurt, but that's because we have a very special guest to interview, Dr. Frederick Hodges. Dr. Hodges has been hailed by the international press as one of the best concert pianists in the world and is sought after by today's foremost orchestras, festivals, conductors, and collaborative musicians. Classically trained? Dr. Hodges has established a reputation as a truly versatile artist equally sought after as piano soloist, singer, guest soloist with the California Pops Orchestra, and dance band pianist with Don Neely's Royal Society Jazz Orchestra. In addition to his talents as a world-class musician, Frederick is a lifelong Lost in Space fan and a professionally trained researcher with a doctorate in history from Oxford University. He combined those two interests to become a dedicated chronicler of the classic sci-fi adventure TV series, spending countless hours poring over the extensive Irwin Allen collection at UCLA. As a result, he has become a recognized expert on the documentary records for the production history of Lost in Space. The evidence that his research has uncovered offers fans unique and fascinating insights that provide a more complete picture on the series. Because of Frederick's singular familiarity with the show's behind-the-scenes history, he has moderated several Lost in Space fan event discussion panels over the years. Before we speak with him, I want to give you a little background info on our guest. Dr. Hodges is a native of California, where he began his piano studies at age 8. At 13, he began intense classical piano study with two famed San Francisco Bay Area piano teachers who were both graduates of the Juilliard School of Music. At age 17, he won the prestigious Music Teachers of California Young Artist Award. At 20, while still an undergraduate at the University of California at Berkeley, he joined Don Neely's Royal Society Jazz Orchestra as a pianist. In 2001, Frederick earned his doctorate in history from Oxford University in England, where he lived for five years as a member of Magdalen College. From 2001 to 2002, he served as a postdoctoral research associate at Yale University. Today, when not on the road performing, Dr. Hodges resides in the San Francisco Bay Area. He maintains several informative Lost in Space-related websites, focusing on his research of the series and his own personal B9 robot build project, which we will link to in our show notes. In today's conversation we're going to delve into several less well-traveled subjects relating to Lost in Space, including the original scripts, authorship of dialogue, especially for Dr. Smith, production procedures, shooting schedules, unfilmed scripts and stories, the soundtrack, music, and much, much more. I know you will enjoy this compelling and informative interview with devoted Lost in Space researcher and fan, Dr. Frederick Hodges. So sit back, relax, and enjoy. Dr. Frederick Hodges, sir, welcome to Alpha Control. It's a pleasure to have you on board our podcast celebrating Irwin Allen's Lost in Space.
1: Well, thank you, Lane. It is a great honor for me to be on your show because this has to be my favorite podcast because it is really about my favorite show. (laughs) Just a a wonderful confluence of events.
0: Oh, well, that's very kind of you to say. So we're grateful for your time, and I've been very interested in all the tremendous work that you've done as a researcher and as a trained historian, really, uh, looking into the documentary history of Lost in Space, the show that we all love. So I want to get into that, but... Before we do, I just wanted to ask you a personal question, if you will. How did you first experience Lost in Space? And could you talk a little bit more about what the show represents to you?
1: Well, when I was a a very young child, one Wednesday night in 1967, Mm -hmm. my parents were just about to send me to bed and somehow the television was on. Mm -hmm. and there was a Lost in Space episode, and I was just riveted, and I would not go to bed. I just had to watch it. It was the episode Target Earth. Mm -hmm. And, of course, it was on past my bedtime, and so that is the moment that the seed was planted. And years later, when I was uh, in elementary school— lost in space was now on reruns and i suddenly discovered what that show was that i'd seen so many years before well actually not that many years before i just Mm -hmm. became riveted and would watch lost in space every day after school and it just was the most exciting thing it was a, a wonderful show in every aspect when i was watching this was in the late 60s and early 70s and so the show wasn't that old Seemed quite fresh. No, there was nothing better on TV. There was no other um, science fiction show that quite matched it. There was certainly Star Trek, which I loved, um, but it was very different in its tone. And I just preferred Lost in Space.
0: Yes, well, it's a it's a familiar story. I've I've asked a lot of people the same thing, and I I get a very similar answer. So you're, you're kind of like me. I had I had a vague memory of seeing it when it was on and broadcast, but I think most of my watching experience was when it was in the rerun or syndicated phase, and I fell in love with it too. So I can certainly relate.
1: Well, it was certainly an advantage to see it in the um, rerun days because at least. In my case, you could watch it every single day. So you could really um, get the story arc because, you know, where I lived in the San Francisco Bay Area, they just showed the episodes in consecutive order Mm. until from the very first episode until the very last one. So I I saw the the entire series many times.
0: Yes. Yep. That's great. We've went over your bio. Um, Of course, uh, very impressed with your career as a a musician, a classically trained uh, concert pianist and everything. But uh, in addition to that, you're also a professionally trained historian with a a PhD in history from Oxford University and significant experience doing research. What motivated you to turn your scholars' gaze Towards Lost in Space.
1: I guess it was inevitable because I had been so um, fascinated with the show since childhood that when it came time to learning more about the show, which I wanted to do, there was just no information out there that I found satisfactory. There certainly were lots of fan-produced books, mm. um, all of which were really quite wonderful in their own way. They frequently had interviews with the cast. But there was nothing that went into the, the detail that I wanted. Most of the books were just essentially synopses of the episodes. But I wanted to know what went on behind the scenes, who was um, working in the meeting room and the production rooms to make this show so great. Mm. And so that's what drove me to go to the Irwin Allen archives at UCLA and find out the truth. It was an amazing experience doing that.
0: Oh, I can imagine. Now, when when did you first start uh, your research into lost in space? How long ago was that?
1: The serious research uh, began in about two thousand two, two thousand four. As soon as I got back to the United States after living in England for many years. Okay,
0: and uh, you mentioned that the Irwin Allen archives are at UCLA. Do you have to be a trained PhD or whatever to get access to that? What's the What's the protocol there?
1: Yes, you have to um, write to the librarian in charge of the film and television archives, and request permission to come to the archives and view the materials. So because I had uh, what looked like good academic credentials on paper, Mm. they were willing to let me in. Uh, So these archives are not open to the public, I see. but thankfully I was able to get access and just repeatedly went down to the archives, poured through them until I'd gone through all of the uh, boxes related to Lost in Space.
0: Well, paint a little picture for us, for those of us that don't have that kind of access. If we walk in to the Irwin Allen Archives, what are we going to see? What does it look like in a physical sense, if you can give us a description?
1: Well, (laughs) there's no room called the Irwin Allen Archives. The Irwin Allen Archives are essentially a collection of all of the papers related to his um, television and movie productions.
0: Man, I'm disappointed. I was expecting it to be like (laughs) a cave from Lost in Space (laughs) with
1: With all all kinds of wonderful machinery. Yes.
0: (laughs) No, I'm just kidding. I'm sorry. Go ahead.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, so you go into a a special uh, reading room where there's a librarian and you fill out a request form, hand it to the librarian. And then minutes later, they bring out what you've asked for. In case of Lost in Space, it's all filed in these large banker boxes Mm -hmm. and they bring you out one box at a time. You open up the box. There are these enormous folders and each folder contains all the production information for a single episode and so i just started pouring through every one of those folders till i'd uh, finished the project
0: so it's essentially all physical it's not like microfilm it's actual folders of documents and it's organized or indexed according to the episodes of the series and i guess it's all the yes. series
1: he did huh? that's right uh, i only looked at lost in space with any thoroughness there was one episode of lost in space that is actually missing from the Lost in Space uh, boxes. I was determined to find it, and I thought, well, uh, maybe it got filed with the other Irwin Allen shows, and unfortunately it wasn't, and that's the episode The Questing Beast from oh. the second season. Oh, yes. So I have no information on that other than the fact that I have an original script, but no uh, production materials. Interesting.
0: Oh, that's a mystery.
1: Yes. So
0: you open up one of these enormous folders for an episode. What are you going to find in there? Are you going to find a script, memos? What's...
1: Well, well, not only one script, but every version of the script. So the, the script would be initially submitted by the, uh, the writer. It would instantly be um, subjected to changes and then the next script, the next version would also be in it, in the folder. It's amazing. Some of these folders had, you know, four or five scripts in them for the same episode. Mm. With all the changes, it's fascinating because you can trace the development of the script from its initial authoring until the final production. But in addition to the scripts... There would be the original, what's called a treatment. The writer would create a little one or two page synopsis of the episode and submit that. I see. Based on that treatment, he would be given the green light or the red light on whether to produce a whole script and submit it. But all of that would be included. And then, quite interestingly enough, there would be budgets, budget summaries for each episode mm. that would list you know, everything that would be required, whether it's a, a special prop or whether it's an existing prop that needed changing or cleaning. For example, the robot was constantly being repaired and repainted. And so every time he was repainted, that cost, which was let's say $100, would be included in the budget of that episode for Ah. which he was repaired. And then there would be these sheets called cast requirements, which would detail who was supposed to appear in the episode, including any guests. There would be detailed script analyses, and these I find the most fascinating. Hmm. The script analysis was done by a man who worked for the show called Les Warner. His uh, official title was production coordinator, and he would examine each script and Determine what could be done, what changes had to be made, what props would be required, what sort of special effects would be required. Based on his analysis, he would determine you know how much the whole thing would cost. And it's fascinating to see how professional the production team was on Lost in Space. They worked so hard on every episode with meetings that would take place months before any um, film was actually shot. Mm. And once I got closer to the filming dates... They would create these production reports that would detail everybody, time that they would arrive at the studio, the time that they would leave, the time that they would take lunch, Mm. how much film was shot. Now, it's really interesting that the script is divided into scenes, and these scenes are not exactly what you would think of in terms of like the scenes of a Shakespeare play. In a television script, a scene is essentially any line of dialogue for which there is a camera setup any time the camera changes, that's a new scene. Uh, so if you can imagine that if you have a, a scene of dialogue, let's say Dr. Smith talking to the robot, every time Dr. Smith talks, that's one scene. Every time the robot answers, that's another scene because the camera has to change mm, to get the different um, view of each actor. Sure. So these detailed um, production reports would list all these scenes and what days and what times they would be filmed. There were also the fascinating and, and quite interesting CBS. Well, I guess you could call them censor reports, but they were comments that the CBS um, executives would send down asking for certain changes or asking that things be um, at least acted out in a certain way. And usually they have to do with avoiding frightening the audience.
0: Right, right. Yes, that's something that I've picked up reading Mark Cushman's book is that there was a lot of influence basically from the CBS folks in that direction because of Lost in Space being slotted during what they called Family Hour. They they had a concern about frightening the the kids, I guess, at home. But that is interesting. You're actually seeing the the memos, I would call them, I guess, from CBS commenting on the script. And this is even before it starts filming. I'm assuming.
1: Oh yeah. What's what I find interesting though is that the um, demands made by CBS were f- frequently ignored. Oh really? So um yes. So. Everyone remembers that wonderful scene at the end of Island in the Sky, where the robot uh, comes after Will when Will is up on top of the chariot trying to make repairs. Oh yeah, that was a scary scene. On. Oh, very scary. And so on June twenty-fourth, nineteen sixty-five, the uh, CBS Network Program Practices sent a letter down to Irwin Allen that stated, and I quote: "Scene two oh nine, which ends the episode with an unresolved horror." Situation, And then in parentheses, a teenager at the mercy of a murderous robot, Mm. close parentheses, Mm. is unacceptable. (laughs) Well, (laughs) obviously they ignored that Yeah, because that scene is there.
0: It's there, all right. And
1: And then a little bit later, August 9th, another memo which states, The changing of the word kill in the robot's line to the word destroy and the deletion of scene 209 lessens the frightening aspect of the tag sequence. However, our concern is not entirely eliminated, and we must reserve final judgment until the film has been viewed. Mm. Well, I guess uh, they decided to let it go, or they never got to see it before it aired, because that scene is frightening. And it is just wonderful. It builds so much tension and conflict. It's a fantastic way to end an episode and to it, ensure that people watch the next one.
0: Right. Oh, yeah. It's a great cliffhanger for the next episode. And I'm assuming that the scene as filmed correlates to what's in the script. Is that Would that be a fair statement?
1: Yes. Yes. I mean, when you talk about the final script the shooting final, they were called. Each each version of the script would have a uh, a different little name underneath it describing the version that it was and with a date. But what's really interesting is that the scripts that would be handed out to the actors or any production people that needed a script were color-coordinated or color-coded. Mm. All the pages, when they were brand new in their first version, would be a single color. And then as script changes were made, those new pages would be retyped out on a typewriter, and different colored paper. And the I guess someone would go to everyone who had a script and say, let me have your script, it would remove the the incorrect page and insert the new page on a different color. And every time that happened, new colors would emerge. And so if you see an original Lost in Space script, they are multicolored. They're quite beautiful just because mm. of the paper that they use. And if you have one with almost no color changes or a solid color, then you know you've got one of the very first versions of a script. Oh. Wow. I see. But it just goes to show, uh, again, how careful they were with the production, that everything, nothing was left to chance. Everything was worked out well in advance because a television show like Lost in Space, which was on a very tight budget in terms of the time that they had to film each episode, had to be planned down to the second Mm. They, they couldn't afford to waste any time or go overtime, which of course they did, <laughs> almost always. Sure. And as Mark Cushman goes over in his book, they would have to come up with many ways to save time so that they could deliver the um, final product to CBS with uh, enough time.
0: Right. Speaking of that, so you mentioned they put these changes to the script. Is it possible to discern, what, I guess it's possible to discern when those revisions were made? I'm, I'm assuming there's dates associated with that. Yeah, th- it, th- there's dates. And why those revisions were made. I mean is it a, so, so for example you talked about the memos coming down from CBS can you tell in the script itself that a change was made because of that memo or you just have to infer that based on the other documents in the folder?
1: I think you would have to infer that. Other changes could be related to the very detailed memos that Les Warner would, would create, although those memos from Les Warner were done early in the process, and so other changes must have occurred for other reasons, perhaps at the director's behest. Mm. For instance, the director would have a script. These are, these are fascinating, too. The director's scripts are heavily marked up in a very special way in sort of a a director's shorthand. I've seen many other Hollywood scripts and they all seem to follow the same pattern in which the director would break up the script into the various camera angles and so all of those things are there and it may have been decided that this scene would be too hard to film or too expensive or take too long to film as originally indicated in the script Mm -hmm. and for those reasons changes would be made. So I mean there are all kinds of reasons why changes would be made but on, on Lost in Space, the changes were done for very solid production reasons.
0: Right. That has got to be fascinating to see one of those director scripts because of all the director shorthand markings that you mentioned there. That would really be interesting. and that, Because we've commented as we're reviewing the episodes, Kurt and I, you can tell the more sophisticated directors, you can really tell the time that they took setting up some interesting camera angles or framing or composition and everything and it's, it's really neat when you've watched the shows a couple, three times to pick up on those things. So that would be fascinating to see the scripts marked up for the directors.
1: Yes, um, absolutely. Especially for an episode like um, Wish Upon a Star, which is one of my all-time favorites. The camera angles and the cinematography in general on that episode are just spectacular. They're as good as the, the finest Hollywood movies could be. And the director in that case was Sutton Rowley. Mm. But the cinematographer for the show was a man named Gene Polito. He had decades of experience and training. And so he and his staff could set up the camera angles and set up the lighting very quickly and efficiently because um, they just didn't have time to spend hours you know, shifting the lights and making things just perfect Gene Polito could get it perfect on the first um, try. On that episode, they just go to town with fantastic camera angles, um, oh yeah, interesting vantage points, and lighting, and um also interesting lensing effects.
0: Right. And there's even some uh, handheld camera shots in that particular episode, at least they appear to be, with, yes. with with some really neat close-ups that really sell the mood in that one. So what about some other pre-production planning materials? Another gentleman named Bill Hedges has sent me pictures of, I think they're called like story maps or something like this, that, that sort of plotted out the, the action of an episode. Are there other things like this, maybe storyboards or anything like that, that are associated with Lost in Space?
1: Yes. And that's another absolutely fascinating thing on Lost in Space is that almost all the episodes were fully storyboarded. And again, the purpose of a storyboard is to enable the cameraman to set up the camera angles well in advance. It also helps the director decide exactly how he's going to shoot each scene. And given the, the fact that Lost in Space was really only supposed to have six days of shooting for each episode, it is astonishing to me that they would take the time to storyboard. You'd think, well, why add all that time? Well, the storyboarding wasn't done during the six days. It was done long before, weeks if not months before, and it just helped them keep to their six-day time limit, or at least as best they could. And what I really found fascinating, Lane, is that there are storyboards for instances and saw in the episode there were giants in the earth storyboards for scenes that did not end up in the final released episode. Oh. And the, these scenes are actually in the script and these scenes were definitely filmed because when I look at the production call uh, sheets, those scenes were filmed and I know exactly what day and what soundstage and I'd love to be able to find, I wish someone could find these scenes because they're scenes of the, uh, the giant coming to the Jupiter 2. Oh, God. Um, Several occasions. There are scenes uh, with Penny and the Giant. Penny, um,. She's in this giant mushroom field, and she comes upon a giant, and there's a giant flower that she picks, and she hands it to the giant. The giant takes the flower, looks at it, and walks away. And in addition to the storyboard, wow. there actually is there are photographs of the giant holding this flower. Wow. And then there's another wonderful scene where uh, the, the giant comes to the Jupiter Two, holding the flower that Penny had given him, and hands the flower to Dr. Smith. <laughs> <laughs> And all of this was filmed. Uh, and I, it's just such a shame to think that it might have been destroyed.
0: Uh, this is, one for the, the this is one, right. <laughs> one for the ages. That's right. One for the ages. We've got to get... Uh, I wish I had known that before I talked to Kevin Burns. I wonder if he has any clue as to whether or not that that's hiding somewhere in a Fox archive or something like that, because that would be... I gotta believe if it, if they had access to it, they would have shared that because that's amazing. I imagine
1: so. If anyone can find it, Kevin Burns is the man who can find it. But you know, but nevertheless, we we do have the photos and the storyboard to um, help us uh, imagine. Yeah. Well, gosh.
0: Thanks for sharing that. That's oh that. (laughs) So I don't think I've ever seen any Lost in Space storyboards. Have they ever been published anywhere, to your knowledge?
1: I don't think so. I've never seen them anywhere. I copied as many as I could from the episodes I cared about, but
0: are they in color? I care about all of them. They just pencil drawings. What are they like? Are they?
1: They're. uh, I guess you would call them charcoal. Some of them do have color. Okay. Interestingly enough, but most of them are just charcoal or pastel. Very nice, very artistically done. Uh,
0: Yeah, I'm sure they had... 20th Century Fox. He probably had a a whole art department that did that sort of thing. I'm very envious that you got a chance to see all that. And those travel maps, I think, were also very interesting documents because one of the things people don't realize is Lost in Space was using a lot of soundstage real estate to film those episodes, wasn't
1: it? Oh, yeah. Well, yes and no. The the travel maps are very important because they would help the director and the cinematographer plan out extensive scenes to make it seem like the uh, Uh, let's say, Will and Dr. Smith are walking long distances. But really, they're just walking in circles around the uh, sound stage. But if you uh, film it in just the right way and change the direction people are walking, you can make it seem that they're walking... You know, large distances. Sure. So um, that's one of the purposes of that. Interestingly enough, though, the travel maps are not included in these uh, in the Irwin Allen archives. Oh, they must have been at Fox and Bill Hedges acquired them either from Fox or from some intermediary. I see. Okay. I, I, and there are also uh, fascinating blueprints of which he has a, a wonderful collection that would be done of the various props that were constructed for each episode. And those, again, are not in the Irwin Allen archives. Yeah, you know, there, there are a lot of things that are missing from the archives and probably were never there. And I don't know why. It would be nice if all of this stuff could be combined at some point.
0: Sure. Well, let's get back to the script. Just I had another question that I forgot to ask you about. The episodes time out at about 51 minutes or so, I think, and that includes the, the opening and closing credits and everything. Everything. I've only gotten a chance to see the little reproduction script that's included with the Blu-ray package for, I think that's for No Place to Hide. How many pages mm. is a is a typical script?
1: Typically, a Lost in Space script is just under 70 pages, okay. 67, 68 pages long. And of course, as you know, the rule in, in Hollywood is that one page of script equals one minute of film time. So even at um, 67 pages, that's too long. But uh, so I'm not quite sure how they adapted that. I guess some some pages were uh, didn't take as long as a minute. But yes. that's how long they are. They contain fascinating information. I'm very fortunate that I have a, a complete collection of scripts. Even when you read the scripts and see the final product. They're not identical. There are differences. Sometimes you wish that they had filmed it exactly where the script is because the scripts frequently are more serious than what actually emerged in the broadcast episode. I see. So the, sh- the show might have had more of a science fiction tone if it had been filmed differently, even just using the same scripts.
0: Does the script also include? Does it describe like special effect shots or you know? Oh yes, that type of uh, thing.
1: Not in great detail. Those the detail for those shots, which are frequently called inserts um, or burn-ins, would be done on a separate sheet, and those separate sheets are included in the um, in the archives, and they're fascinating because every one of those special s- shots, those process shots or inserts, cost money. Mm. Every time you see um, an image on a screen, let's say they're looking at, um, I don't know, like a a television screen and some alien appears on it. Well, that is very special um, and complicated process shot that usually costs about $400 to do no matter how long it lasted. So Lost in Space had to be very careful in the uh, number of special shots like that just because they had to uh, stay within budget.
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, this is the days before computer animation and everything like we have today. So everything was either a physical model that had to be filmed or a, an animation that had to be done on an old fashioned animation stand by a, an artist with, you know, cells and all this sort of thing. So I can imagine it was expensive. and
1: Yes, it's not only that, though. So there's a, uh, a scene, for example, in War of the Robots where the robotoid picks up this mirror-like object and puts it on a rock and it turns on and there is this alien talking to him as if it were, you know, a a 1960s Skype machine. Well, how did they do that? They had to physically go to the negative and remove the interior of that mirror device and then paste behind it frame by frame um, the image that they wanted to appear there. In this case, the image of that dog-like alien face. That is a lot of work. Wow. But that is why it costs so much. And that's why they had to be limited in the uh, the number of such shots, because not only did they cost a lot, but they took a lot of time.
0: Right. Well, that's fascinating. Now let's talk about this little. Since we're getting into scripts and the filming and everything, this is an interesting topic in Lost in Space lore, and that is the amount of input that Jonathan Harris had on his dialogue and direction for his character, Doctor Smith. I've seen cast members and crew members in interviews or in writing state that eventually Jonathan Harris was more or less given carte blanche to rewrite or even at sometimes ad lib his lines. What does your research show and what can you tell us about that issue?
1: That is a fascinating issue. I guess we can preface it by saying that Jonathan Harris would appear on various talk shows, and especially during the release of the Lost in Space movie in the 1990s. And he was a wonderful interviewee. He mm. was so entertaining, funny. And, of course, the, the rules when you're being interviewed are be funny, have interesting stories, and say something that really surprises people that they'll remember. And so the stories that he came up with were about how he... Um, wrote all those lines about the uh, the robot those wonderful insults
0: like like bubble booby and
1: exactly it makes a wonderful story and so i just naturally accepted it and then when i started collecting the scripts and reading them i found well gosh all of those insults are in the scripts as submitted by the authors of the scripts and that seems to be the case all around the only thing I can imagine is that it's possible that Jonathan Harris would send memos off to the writers after the script was initially handed to him, and he would request that changes be made based on new alliterative insults that he might come up with. That's possible. I just have never seen any evidence of that. I see. Okay. And so I think we need to be, those of us who you know just care about the the truth, need to be skeptical of the things that he said. But that's not to um, cast him in a bad light. It's just taking into account the fact that as an interviewee on television, his job was to be entertaining, and he certainly did that. But he he didn't perhaps fulfill the requirements of a historian. (laughs) It came Uh, to talking about the process of creating a script.
0: I had always assumed there was a little bit of exaggeration in that claim. But, you know, there's no doubt about the fact that Jonathan Harris, he had a significant influence on how the character was performed. You know, I think writers, they they get a sense for the voice of a character. That's
1: oh, of course. Him. I mean, yeah. th- these writers were smart. They caught on uh, right. the, what, how Dr. Smith would interact with the robot. So I'm sure they had a lot of fun creating the insults as well. Again, this is not to take away from the fact that Jonathan Harris is a fantastic actor, and he created that character. And when you think of the other actors who had been asked to play that role, such as, you know, Carol O'Connor, I'm sure they would have been good, but it wouldn't have been the same character that Jonathan Smith, uh, Jonathan Harris created, because he really created one of the greatest characters in all of television and movie history. And um, I'm so grateful to him for having done that. Absolutely. Absolutely.
0: Now, one thing that you mentioned earlier was the professionalism of the production team. You know, you can really tell that from the documentation that you've gone through, all the details, all the planning that had to take place well before the cameras rolled. Did you find that that was consistent throughout all three seasons
1: of the series? Oh, yes. They had standards that they had to maintain and were happy to do so. When you take a a third season episode, for instance, The Great Vegetable Rebellion, well, it's easy to dismiss that episode and to think, well, everyone just fell down on the job. But that's not true at all. That episode involved just as many, if not more, production meetings than any other. If you look at the original script for it, it's almost entirely different. Mm. Um, So the number of script changes... To that episode are more extensive than any I've ever others ever seen so Willoughby was originally supposed to be this time-traveling psychedelic talking llama and, oh. <laughs> thank, and thankfully they uh changed that to just this mild-mannered botanist <laughs> uh, with purple hair <laughs> right <laughs> but um you know and it all involved detailed discussions, and of course, the purple llama or it's the talking llama was supposed to become a regular uh character on the show, <laughs> and so that involved tremendous discussion and Back and forth between the production team, and the fact that you never saw that is a testament to the 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 passion and the dedication of the production team. They worked hard to maintain standards. Now, when we're talking about the change in Lost in Space from a purely science fiction show to really a comedy show, that was something that was forced upon them by CBS, and it wasn't because they fell down on the job. They had to keep the show going. That was their job: is to you know employ people, and if CBS demanded that this be a comedy show, then that's what they did. And that's the direction that they were forced to go. And uh, they did a good job at it. Because if you watch those episodes, not hoping that they'll be science fiction, but just hoping that they'll be funny. Well, they deliver. Yes. They are hilarious.
0: They are. Well, and it was part of it was the scheduling. I think that the time slot, it certainly affected, you know, how scary the show could be. But also Wednesday night, I think uh, CBS had a lot of that was sort of like their comedy night, I think.
1: Oh, it was. Yes. Um, CBS um, put out big full-page ads in magazines like Variety and, um, of course, TV Guide announcing their comedy lineup for Wednesday. And so Lost in Space was the first show in their comedy lineup. The next show on CBS following Lost in Space was Beverly Hillbillies and then Green Acres and then finally Petticoat Junction. <laughs> And then what was Lost in Space up against on the other networks? Um, well, the only sort of serious show, if you can call it that, would be The Virginian, which was a Western. And then Batman and The Honeymooners. So certainly Batman and The Honeymooners are uh, comedy shows. And that was the competition. So it had to adapt or yes. it, it would have failed. And it's it's wonderful that it lasted three seasons.
0: Yep. We are very fortunate that that it did. Um
1: Yeah. Because had it only been um, pure science fiction, it wouldn't have lasted one season. It might not have even lasted a full season.
0: That is that is very true. So you've already mentioned there were some scenes shot for some episodes that didn't make it into the final episode. Or maybe there were also some scenes that were scripted that didn't get filmed for the episode timing out long or whatever. But my understanding is there were also story treatments or even a few scripts that were done for the series that never got filmed. Do the archives contain any information on those as well?
1: Not in. Uh, Directly. Um, Mark Cushman goes into great detail in his book about the unfilmed scripts, and he gained access to quite a lot of them. I was very fortunate in that I was put in contact with the daughter of one of the Lost in Space scriptwriters, Carrie Wilbur. And she sent me a script that her father had created for Lost in Space, a script called The Curious Galactics. Mark Cushman goes into detail about this particular script, so I encourage people to read the book. The script was uh, commissioned, and why they didn't film it, I don't know. I guess uh, for whatever reason, they didn't need it. But early on in the show, while they were filming the first five episodes, Irwin Allen put in a request for new scripts, and I have the actual documentation. And so he had assigned Carrie Wilbur several scripts, and they were given production numbers, but um, for whatever reason, which is such a shame, they were never done. This is a especially fascinating script, The Curious Galactics, but all yeah. of them are good.
0: Yeah, tell us a little bit about that story, just if you can Because those are the kinds of things that really fascinate fans. What didn't we get to see?
1: Well, in this episode, it involves strange alternate timelines that uh, affect various members of the uh, Robinson family. And in the end, they realize that an alien has been manipulating them from behind the scenes. It's sort of an episode that you might see on Star Trek. Hmm. It's so complicated, but maybe the complicated aspect is one of the reasons they didn't film it. They just thought the audience wouldn't be able to follow it. Oh, but see. in the third season, there's certainly lots of episodes, I mean, involving Willoughby the Llama. There's a famous one, I think you can get this on eBay quite easily, called Malice in Wonderland, or one, Malice in Wonderspace. And when you read those, they're fun, but you're sort of glad they never filmed them. <laughs> 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 they're just too wild. really. And uh, it would have just made more episodes like the Great Vegetable Rebellion. Mm. And uh, I guess one of those is enough. Yes, yes. One is
0: enough, I suppose. One of the interesting things as well is that Lost in Space thought that they had been picked up for a fourth season before it was ultimately canceled. Do you have any idea whether or not they'd already started developing some scripts for that?
1: Well, if they had, they're not in the Irwin Allen archives. And definitely Malice in Wonder Space is a fourth season script. Wow. So, if there are more scripts for the fourth season i don 't know I, I never found any evidence, but i, I can 't imagine there weren 't if they, if they submi- uh, made a submission for one, there must have been others so yes. uh, all I can do is wonder maybe Mark Cushman has more information. I would certainly love to know about it yes, that I would love to know about that as well.
0: I hope you're enjoying this great interview with renowned concert musician and historian Dr. Frederick Hodges as much as I am. What I love about talking to Frederick is he's not just an authority on the subject of Lost in Space, he's a true fan, and his passion really shines through when you listen to him speak. He's got more to share about Lost in Space, Irwin Allen, and much, much more. So sit tight for part two of our interview with Lost in Space guru, Dr. Frederick Hodges. You also mentioned that the filming schedule was tight. Six days was planned for that. They could frequently, especially during the first season, would would go over that. And of course, it's not surprising. It was a very challenging effort to do a show like that that no one had done before. They came dangerously close to missing a delivery schedule, but they managed to always make it somehow, some way. But I guess they did some pretty creative things along the way to avoid missing a delivery date. Do the archives shed any light on that?
1: You bet they do. So when I was going through the archives, I was fascinated to see a whole folder on something called Space Twins. And I thought, oh my goodness, what is this? This is some episode that I've never heard of that's not been filmed or not been aired and I poured through this and the plans for space twins were initially proposed on August twelfth, nineteen sixty five. Well, August twelfth, nineteen sixty five, that is during the filming of Island in the Sky, the very third Episode And so it was by that third episode that they realized they were in trouble in terms of going over time. But the they didn't implement Space Twins until much later. And so when I read through Space Twins, the, the initial proposal were for two episodes, neither of which I have, were ever filmed or even scripted. They were just sort of ideas on how you could film two episodes at the same time in order to um, get back on budget. So there never was an uh, an episode called Space Twins. It was a little bit misleading. But instead, they came up with the idea of filming, um, well, in the perfection notes, it's called Robbie the Robot, but that's, of course, War of the Robots and The Magic Mirror. Mm. If they could split the cast in two, they could then film two episodes at the same time using the different sound stages that they had available to them. So The Magic Mirror and War of the Robots were the first instance of Space Twins. But interestingly enough, uh, those two episodes didn't start filming until January 24th. And at that point, they were already dangerously behind schedule. If you look at an episode like, well, take Wish Upon a Star. Filming wrapped up on Wish Upon a Star on November 4th, 1965. But the episode aired on November 24th. So that's only 20 days that they have... For post-production, and post-production is when all the film is edited together, when all the sound is added, and the robot's voice had to be recorded by Dick Tufeld in the studio. That took a while. Sound effects, the music had to be added and edited. You know, there's a million things that have to be done in all post-production. All the titles have to be made. The titles, and then of course you have to print 35 millimeter copies. All of that in 20 days. Well, that's you know. <laughs> almost impossible to do, but somehow they uh, were able to do it. And then, for example, Attack of the Monster Plants, that wrapped up filming on December 3rd, 1965, but it aired December 15th, mm. only 12 days for post-production, So, uh, which is just not enough. I'm sure um, Irwin Allen got a lot of angry phone calls from the uh, executives at CBS. Finally, starting January 24th, they went in to production with the so-called space twins, Magic Mirror finished filming on February 1st. It aired February 16th, and War of the Robots finished. It just took a. It actually took less time. That finished on January 31st, and that aired on February 9th. Again, almost no time. Right. But that caught them up. So, for example, the next episode filmed was The Challenge. And that finished filming on February 10th, 1966. But it didn't air till March 2nd. So they had quite a bit of time there.
0: Yeah, they gained some breathing room, I guess. Um, A
1: little breathing room, but not enough. Uh, And so starting on March 11th, they filmed another set of space twins, and that is All That Glitters and The Lost Civilization. Those both started filming on March 11th. All That Glitters finished on the 18th, and Lost Civilization finished on the 21st of March. And they aired well, All That Glitters on the 6th. And Lost Civilization on the 13th of April. And the next episode was Change of Space. And that finished on March 30th. And it didn't air till April 20th. So that bought them 21 days of time, which, you know, probably isn't enough time, but... That's the best they could do under this production schedule. And I suppose the uh, production schedule of filming an entire episode in six days was unrealistic from the beginning because they almost never were able to achieve that. It just shows the testament to the production team that they were able to turn out such a quality product in so little time when every day must have been tremendously rushed. It can't have been much fun to work on the set or be an actor because they they worked from like eight in the morning until six at night, most days, with no break, a little lunch break, but that was it. Wow.
0: Well, that Space Twins concept really saved their bacon, it sounds like. And I can tell you as a, a guy that's just gotten into production as a podcaster, I appreciate this because the one thing they told me, if you're going to publish every week publish every week. The worst thing you can do is is miss a week because you will tick off all your listeners that are waiting for the new one to come out. And I feel like that sometimes. It's a challenge. And man, when you're talking about millions of dollars on the line and network executives breathing down your neck, they were uh, they were very fortunate. And that Space Twins thing worked out. And, and, and as a viewer, that's interesting to hear because you wondered as a kid sometimes, hey, how come Penny wasn't in this episode? Or how come only Dr. Smith and June are in an episode? or whatever, you know, it made you scratch your head. I wonder if they were sick or something. No, they were trying to get caught up.
1: Yeah, they were They were working just on a different soundstage. And of course, it helps balance the view that sometimes you would hear when cast would be interviewed. There was always the suggestion that certain actors would, would anger Irwin Allen, and then as punishment, he would write them out of an episode. And so you look at one of these episodes and you say, oh, well, boy, uh, Guy Williams doesn't appear in this episode. I guess he got in trouble and was written out of it. And it's it's just not true. He was never to be in that episode at all. It's just a a matter of time savings. And, of course, they had really learned their lesson during that first season, because during the second season, from the end of shooting until the air date, there was almost always a two-month leeway. So. It just showed that they had learned a lot from the experience of the first season and were able to adhere to the shooting schedule that CBS had asked them to follow.
0: Right. Well, I think that part of that, too, is I think they started filming a lot earlier for the second season than they did for the first season. And that gave them probably a little bit more leeway as well. But Yeah,
1: that's true. I mean, for instance, uh, the very first episode of uh, the first of the second season, Blast Off Into Space, that started filming June 21st, 1966, whereas in the first season, uh, they didn't start filming until July, July 19th, 1965. So they gave themselves a a month extra and they really needed it. Mm. And now, of course, in the first season, they didn't they didn't have the time. Right. They'd only gotten the green light and you know by ju- the beginning of July. So that's just the way it had to work out.
0: That was fascinating. Well, I want to shift gears just a little bit, Frederick, and I want to take advantage of your expertise as a uh, world-class musician. I think one of the remarkable things about Lost in Space, to me, is the quality of the music. And I'd like for you to give us your opinion about the music that was scored originally for the show. Uh, we all know that there was some tracked music used from the Fox Library and so forth, but but what did you think of the music?
1: Well, I think any uh, musician would agree with almost any fan who watches the show that the music is not only an integral part of the experience of the episodes, but one of the key elements, because the scores that John Williams produced are just fantastic. Some of the best work he has ever done, and it, it shows the influence of Stravinsky and Arnold Schoenberg, early Arnold Schoenberg, I should say, and just the whole history of film music. is. And John Williams was so young when he created these scores. It's just the, the talent, the, the genius of that man is evident on every note of his Lost in Space music. Mm-hmm. And of course, John Williams wasn't the only one. Um, there was a, a wonderful man named Herman Stein, who wrote several episodes. And then of course, in the third season, they brought in all kinds of other composers. Mullendore, for instance, Alexander Courage. Alexander Courage also worked on the uh, second season. What I find really interesting is that the music was reused. So for instance, John Williams wrote the score for The Reluctant Stowaway. Now, The Reluctant Stowaway is, let's say, uh, just a make a round number, let's say it's 60 solid mi- minutes of music. But the editors, the music editors on the Lost in Space team were able to divide up that score and take out of it the various emotional elements that they needed to provide music for the rest of the uh, series. You'd think that John Williams would write new music for every episode. Well, they, nobody could afford that and it's not necessary because in a, uh, a misterioso section that he wrote for Reluctant Stowaway could easily be reused. And the fact that things were reused in Instructed The audience on what to expect. Mm-hmm. So you knew when, even if nobody on the screen knew, you knew when the monster was about to appear. appear. <laughs> you, <laughs> right. you, uh, and you knew when Dr. Smith was playful because the music would instruct you uh, that he was being playful rather than being malicious. All of this was informed by the music. It was, I, there must have been some sort of guidance from the music editors, because in The Reluctant Stowaway, John Williams creates this wonderful music that uh, is played when Dr. Smith first appears when he comes out of that hidden couch on the lower deck of the Jupiter Two, and that music is full of alarm and danger, and it's based on a very simple theme, which I will play on the piano for you right now. Mm, yes. It's played much faster over and over again well when it came time for Herman Stein to write an episode which was uh, there were giants in the earth mm. not his first but it's one he did mm-hmm. there's this a wonderful extended scene of Dr. Smith going around the campsite, supposedly helping people in their various tasks. And so Herman took that little motif and turned it into a wonderful little piece, which uh, it must've had a name. I don't know what it is, but I call it the Dr. Smith Promenade. Dr. Smith's Promenade is played behind him as he weaves about, you know, up to his mischievous deeds. And then that theme would be used for him throughout the rest of the series. Mm -hmm. Whenever he appears, you hear that wonderful melody. The robot had his own theme that John Williams created for him. This first is heard when the robot is seen for the very first time in the reluctant stowaway. Obviously, he created this with an idea that it would be used in other scenes. The music beautifully replicates the walking motion of the robot as he walked in those first episodes when he would shuffle, when his feet separated. And even though in later episodes when they had bolted the tread box together, so he just rolled instead of walked, they would use the same sort of walking theme. It's really quite interesting. If you listen carefully, you'll hear the basses and the cellos and the uh, the other low instruments like the bass clarinet playing this shuffling theme. So to me, that sounds exactly like the robot walking. It's yes. just uh, tremendous that he did that. And of course, the chariot has its own theme. Um, every time you see the chariot, uh, when it's rolling across the desert landscape, they play the chariot music. And then of course, there's the famous family theme, also created by um, Hermann Stein. And this sort of music is following the best tradition of Hollywood film music writing, the creation of leitmotifs in the Wagnerian style that tell you who is on the stage and what that person's emotion is because the, the music slightly changes depending on the, uh, the scene and the mood. And so anyway, uh, Lost in Space music is one of the greatest scores ever produced. I would love to shake John Williams' hand and thank him so much for all that he did. <laughs> you know, contributing to the, the glory of the show.
0: Well, you and me both, this level of detail that he actually went to the trouble of themes for characters. I mean, it's something we're used to in the movies that John Williams did. I mean, Star Wars, for example, you know, has the Darth Vader theme or the Luke Skywalker theme or whatever. That's where I first became aware of that whole concept. But for a TV show to have that sort of thing, and maybe a lot of viewers, it goes over their head. They They probably don't think about it, but... I certainly do. When I hear that Dr. Smith theme, as you called it, or the promenade or whatever, I know that's Dr. Smith. Even if I'm not watching the show <laughs> with my eyes and I hear that, I know, oh, Dr. Smith busts me up to something right now, or the robot. And that robot theme's interesting to me, too, because yes, it does. It does give you the impression of the walking of the legs like he did at the beginning, but it also sounds more menacing. I don't know if that's a minor key. I'm not <laughs> musically intelligent enough to tell that, but it has more of a menacing sound to it to me. And that was the way the robot was portrayed in the early episodes when that was
1: scored. Oh, yeah. yeah. But of course, John Williams would rework that theme and different scenes and that other composers would take that same robot leitmotif and make it more playful. You'll hear that in the second and the third season. The same theme, but just made kind of jolly because that's the that was the new character of the robot mm. and that, so that's the genius of those light motifs is that they are uh, infinitely adaptable to whatever the uh, emotion is required
0: right, and as you said, even the chariot has its own theme, and the the jetpack has its own theme. But of course, that was a borrowed musical cue, I believe, from Bernard Herrmann, if I'm not mistaken. So
1: yes, and of course, um, when you watch the original pilot, all of the music is taken from the library of Twentieth Century Fox. It's of course the the wonderful Bernard Herrmann score for the day the Earth stood still. Mm. And they continue to use some of that music. I mean, that was one of the great advantages that Irwin Allen had by filming at 20th Century Fox, is that he was given access to their sound and music library. I was watching a, uh, a movie once and absolutely fascinated because here was the robot's sounds. Now, the robot had this whirring and clicking sound whenever he appeared on screen. Now, that sound was created for a movie called Desk Set with Katherine Hepburn and Spencer Tracy, and it's the sound of this giant room-sized computer. Oh. And so that, that sound effect was created for that movie, but it stayed in the library of 20th Century Fox, and so naturally, uh, the sound editors at Lost in Space grabbed that and, and used it.
0: Wow. I've always wondered about that sound effect. Well, they had a lot of great sound effects for the show. We just recorded uh, a review show on Invaders from the 5th Dimension, the popping noise, and I think it's also in The Sky is Falling that that unique popping sound when someone disappears basically or something appears. That's yes. one of my favorite sound effects, but they had a lot of <laughs> great effects in this uh, in this series and I always wondered about that sound that the robot makes in the background. It's 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 a unique sound, but the uh,
1: That's cool. Well, it's unique to our ears because we're not used to that sort of equipment, but the way they created it was just using telephone switching equipment. You you and I would probably never have gone into a telephone switching station, but if we had, we would have heard that same noise because it's the sound of relays opening and closing. The the whirring of uh, cogs and wheels and chains, (laughs) It's, (laughs) it's a purely mechanical sound. Which you would not really have in a uh, robot. Nothing leads us to indicate that that Lost in Space robot was made of cogs and wheels, as if he were clockwork. But the sounds are, suggest that he was made of clockwork.
0: Right. So right. It's a
1: little bit of an anachronism, but it doesn't matter. It's a it's a it's a wonderful sound, and people who build Lost in Space robots today always have a little soundtrack with that background noise going on because it's just essential. But now, Lane, you mentioned the wonderful episode, Invaders from the Fifth Dimension. And I wonder if I might add something to your knowledge base on that. I think people will be interested to know that the spaceship for that episode is one of the most beautiful and amazing designs that ever appeared on, well, appeared anywhere, especially in a science fiction show, because it is nothing like what humans would expect a spaceship to look like. The Jupiter Two is what everyone thinks of as a spaceship sleek, and metallic, beautifully proportioned. Whereas this alien spaceship looks like, I don't know, like a hollowed out method candle or something. It's just totally bizarre and, and therefore more realistic, very alien. And so naturally everyone knows that Robert Kinoshita was the head of uh, design of the show. And everyone assumes that he designed that ship. And in fact, Mark Cushman repeats that information. And most people assume that's true. But as part of my research, I interviewed uh, Robert K. Nishita, and I was praising him for his wonderful designs. And I showed him a picture of that alien ship and pointed it out as, you know, sh- proving his genius. And he said, no, 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 I did not design that. I think that's a horrible ship. That was done by Paul Zastupnevich, no, he said please do not accuse me of having created that ship. Wow. So I found that really interesting. I have never seen the original blueprints for that and I don't know what they say. Maybe they'd say Robert Kinoshita did it or imply that he did just because he was the head of the of the art committee there. And but it doesn't mean he actually designed it if his, even if his name appears on the blue uh, on the blueprints. I just offer that as a little bit of information. No, oh,
0: it's interesting background information. People love that stuff, and I certainly do. I have to disagree. I'm not a trained graphic artist. Uh, don't have Kenoshita's uh, credentials or anything. And of course, it's a matter of taste, but uh, Kurt and I both really liked that sh- ship because it looked so different from anything that you would see. It was almost organic. It was unsymmetrical and everything. So that's interesting that Paul Zastupnevich, I have a hard time saying his name, designed...
1: Zastupnevich. Of course.
0: Yes. I mean, he, <laughs> he was famous for, uh, obviously, he was the costume designer for Irwin Allen's TV properties, but he also was the monster creator, I guess, and that was also, must have been a fun job to have.
1: <laughs> oh, yeah. If anyone had fun on that show, it was Paul Vastupievich. <laughs> he, he got it's... to do so many wonderful things.
0: And the good thing is his work got to appear many times. <laughs>
1: <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know.
0: Oh, That's great. That's all. It's all fun. It really is. Now, you, you gave me an opportunity to segue to another topic, and I, I know we're being greedy with your time here, but I'm having a good time talking to you. I interviewed a friend of yours, Craig Reinbrecht, the uh, leader of the B9 Builders Club, and I understand that you're a proud builder yourself. You have some websites. We're going to link to your websites, your research ones, but you also have a website on your B9 robot. Uh, tell us a little bit about yours.
1: Well, my robot is is a first season robot so it has the coloring that one would have seen in the first season and of course you might think well but the first season was in black and white how do you know what the colors were well Mm -hmm. we know because there were color photographs taken of the robot and so we know exactly what colors he was and since the first season is my favorite season i decided that would be my robot yeah it took a number of years to produce and it's still not finished I think no one who has built a robot um, would call it finished. There are always upgrades that you can make and little tweaks here and there. Sure. But it was a wonderful project to work on and has given me years of pleasure.
0: Well, I learned a lot interviewing Craig. We're actually recording this episode in the early part of July 2018 for all you people listening in the year 2100. But in June of 2018, I got to go to Wonderfest in Louisville, Kentucky, which is a sci-fi fantasy convention. And the B9 Club had nine robots there. It was my first time to see them in person. Boy, was I jealous. And I'm, I'm very envious of anyone that, that has one of those things. They're just awesome. They're just so fascinating. And everybody that walked into that room, they, they actually needed a bigger room. But it was cool seeing that many robots in one place. Yours would have been welcome there, I can tell you, Frederick, because there were no first season versions there. But um, there were a lot of beautiful robots, including Craig's, and I learned something that people build them in different ways. For example, Craig's is a suit. He tried to make his, I guess, as much like the original suit that Bob May wore during the filming of these series. And then there's other versions. Is yours a suit or more of like a statue? I don't know the exact terminology, but what kind do you have in that regard?
1: I would um, have to put mine in the category of a statue. It would be a very difficult um, suit because... What the original robot was made largely of fiberglass. So what looks like metal is fiberglass, except for the um the tread boxes. those are steel on the original robot. Um, Craigs is very much like that, so it's as lightweight as possible. Mine is as heavy as possible. So what looks like metal is metal, uh-huh. uh, except for the torso. that um I would love to have that in metal, but that's a, a another project. Um, but the rest of mine is extremely heavy, so there's really no way anybody could wear it. I see. But, okay. uh, but I would love to have mine animatronic. That's a, another avenue to go down. Right. But that, that involves uh, information about electronics and motors that I don't possess. But maybe someday I can coerce someone, pay someone to uh, animate my robot. I would love that.
0: Beautiful. Well, I've seen a couple pictures of yours, and it, it, it's it's a beauty. One of the things that uh, that B9 Club experience offered you is you you actually got a chance to meet Kevin Burns in person, I understand.
1: Yes, we had our... Famous trip down to uh, Beverly Hills to uh, spend some time with Kevin Burns. It was a marvelous experience. Kevin was so gracious and so generous with us that we'll we'll never forget it. But uh, but that's sort of typical of the Lost in Space community, as we call it. Everyone Mm. is so nice and so helpful. That's been my experience.
0: I can tell you that. I've just been floored i i'm a newcomer to this whole thing not not being a lost in space fan but actually being active you know t- trying to participate in a small way in the community and and i agree with you kevin burns i got to talk to him and he seemed like such a genuinely nice person and of course uh i feel like people that like lost in space really owe him a big debt of gratitude for all he's done to keep the keep the flame alive all these years so
1: Oh, that's right. Without Kevin Burns, we wouldn't have the Blu-ray. We wouldn't have had the DVDs or even the VHS tape versions. It would just be nothing available. He has He's a wonderful steward of the um, Irwin Allen archives and has done so much to keep it alive and keep it thriving. I mean, he's also one of the producers on the, the wonderful new Netflix TV show.
0: Absolutely. Which is
1: awesome. Also part of the uh, Lost in Space family, uh, fam- the, the history of the show. And we owe it all to him.
0: Now, I understand he has a little bit of personal memorabilia himself.
1: Oh, yes. Well, he has a robot, as you, one would expect. He showed us in his garage, he had the original full-size, well, large-size model of the chariot. Oh, and... you mean the
0: one that they used to film? The, the
1: miniature? Yep, oh, the miniature. Yeah. Now, miniature is, uh, in quotes, it's very large. Um, it, it, it could sit comfortably on the average dining room table and take up much of it.
0: And it has cool. the little
1: the little dummies inside uh, dressed in their parkas. <laughs> it's really an amazing piece of workmanship. Mm. And so he has that. And, of course, um, one thing that he has that I really loved is, of course, this was when we went to visit him before the Blu-rays came out. But he had a complete set of... Of every episode on 16 millimeter film, and of course the 16 millimeter film has a much finer, more beautiful image than the VHS tapes did, which were available at that time. So you really saw everything crystal clear. Wow! So I mean, so not only is he in charge of the the Irwin Allen Papers and archive, but he he loves the show and he loves sharing his his love of the show with other people. It's it's such a A wonderful thing to have someone like that in charge of of the show and its legacy.
0: It sure is. Well, before we finish up our talk today, um, and and again, I hope this is just the first of several talks that we can have together, because uh, I'm sure we've only scratched the surface of your knowledge here. Because of your Lost in Space credentials and stage experience, you've moderated several fan event panel discussions, and you've also done some presentations on the show. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
1: Yes, the Lost in Space uh, B9 Robot Builders Club put together a festival called LIS. Fest, Liz Fest 2003, which was held in Cleveland, Ohio. Really, it was mainly organized by Craig Reinbrecht and Mike Joyce, but I helped out in the tiniest way by being the interviewer of two of the stars from the show, Mark Goddard and Bob May. So we had them come up on stage, and I asked them questions, and we showed clips from uh, the show highlighting their talent, and it was a wonderful experience getting to know them Mm -hmm. and having them reveal their insider information Mm -hmm. on the on the show. Mm. Yeah. And then, of course, through Kevin Burns, we were able to meet Dick Tufeld and who was an absolute wonderful gentleman. Mm. So knowledgeable and so friendly. Um, again, it just, just just goes to show that this show created a wonderful feeling in so many people in the people who worked on it and in the fans that it is uh, really a, a wonderful cultural artifact of that era that keeps on living and, and thriving because of the, uh, the wonderful feelings that it generates.
0: Yeah, it's a special thing. It really is. That's great. Well, I think we'll probably wrap it up here. I'd just like to give you an opportunity before we go to let our listeners know where they can catch up with you. We're going to link to your websites, as I said, but where else can we catch up with you in the future?
1: Well, I suppose my website, frederickhodges.com, is the best way to find out what I'm doing and where I am. Other than that, probably just pay attention to uh, any future Events where the Lost in Space Robot Builders will be appearing. I'll try to make uh, as many of those events as I can.
0: Now, your website also has your upcoming performance schedules on there? Yes. Yeah. Great. It's
1: it's basically there to advertise my career as a pianist. Um, But if you follow the links, you can find the Lost in Space Robot or just do a Google search for Berkeley Robot Project. That'll lead you to my uh, Lost in Space Robot page. Okay.
0: Fantastic. I will definitely do that. So Dr. Frederick Hodges, thanks again for being so generous with your time and joining us on Alpha Control. It's been a it's been a real pleasure speaking with you today and getting to hear your stories and your insights from your research. I know it's going to be a real, real treat for our listeners. We can't thank you enough, and we hope to get you back on the show in the future.
1: Well, thank you so much, Lane. It has been a great pleasure being on your show. Good luck, and um, I look forward to hearing all your future episodes.
0: Oh, thank you. Thank you. I really appreciate that. We'll talk to you later.
1: Thanks. Goodbye.
0: That was a blast talking to Dr. Frederick Hodges. His research was astounding, and we only scratched the surface. So let's keep our fingers crossed that he'll make time down the road to come back and talk more Lost in Space. In the meantime, we will be back next week with another episode of Alpha Control, where Kurt and I will get back to reviewing our beloved original Lost in Space. Until then, take care, and we'll see you then. Thanks, fellow Galactic Castaways, for listening to the Alpha Control Podcast. Please leave your comments or questions on our Facebook page, Twitter, or email us at alphacontrolpodcast at gmail.com. Subscribe to the podcast via libsyn.com. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N dot com. Or through iTunes. If you like the show, please leave us a review as well. Thanks again. And we'll see you next week, same time, same channel.